0: Parshasva era, introducing the Makos. The fury of the Makos, Makastam, bloodying the Nile River, or of wild beasts, and so forth, provokes in some people's imagination a concept of vengeance fighting with the enemy of vindictiveness. In fact, I have heard some suggest, I believe incorrectly, that the idea is to give catharsis to the victim, in this case, the Jewish people, with this sense of, we got him, we got him, we got him. And these people see the Haggadah's drash, when it tallies up the tens and then hundreds of Makos, how many sub Makos? And before you know it, there's 250 Makos. And then at the Amsterdam, X amount and X amount and X amount. They see it from this vindictive perspective, as the saying in some circles goes regarding the Yom Tovin. They tried to kill us, we won, let's eat. However, I find something uncomfortable, unresonant about this vindictive perspective. This is Torah. This is Hashem's ideal, and in Hashem's ideal, combativeness cannot be the end game. The end game and the place we are aspiring to ought to be a place of harmony. To put it another way, Hashem is the one and only. Hashem is our God. Hashem is the Mitzram's God. Hashem is the God of everyone. So in the end, there can't be this us and then thing. Rather, the makos and visiting justice upon the aggressor, must be a means to bring everyone to recognition of Hashem, to bring everyone to a good place akin to the rod of the schoolteacher or the paddle down south, which maybe would not be accepted today, but the idea is In certain circumstances, the unruly student requires a rather blunt discipline tool. That is how I would like to see the Makos. But the goal is to ultimately bring Paro and the Mitzrim on board to recognize the Amos, to recognize the truth as well. So to buttress this perspective, to trace it in the text itself, I think it's important to get a sense of direction. What is the goal? What is the Torah's goal? What is Hashem's goal th- through the Makos? Where is he heading? Is he heading to a place of vengeance or to a place of peace? Let's feel the pulse of the text and sense where the goal destinations are as we follow all the intricacies of the Makos, the frogs and the vacillations of Paro and all that stuff, but where are things headed? What is the goal? Well, for starters, simply studying our Parsha and the layout of our Parsha, we have a rather strange Division within the Makos. Because Parsha Sveira, our Parsha narrates seven of the Makos. It takes us all the way to the Hail. Seven out of ten. And then the curtain of the Parsha closes. Next week's Parsha, Bo, concludes the series of ten with a three final. In fact, there is a well known mnemonic next week's parsha parsha's bow bays aleph gematria 2 plus 1 is some sort of ramus to the three final makos. The point is the division of the parshius, the and bow respectively, seem to be dividing a grouping of seven, all the makos through hail, and then the final three. And what is the significance of that division? It seems like a Arbitrary place to divide the Makos. Was Borrowed, was the hail at the end of our Parsha really a climax point? The truth is, the Parsha the division, the A and Bo respectively, are clearly not random. The Torah itself makes it clear. That after Barrett, after the hail in our parsha, next week's parsha, Bo with its three makos at the end, is a whole new unit. Because next week's parsha begins with an entire intro. It says, Bo al-pada. Moshe, you know why you should go to Paro to complete these last three makos? To produce these miracles, and because the Jewish people need a good story at the Seder. The final three makos require a new justification. Go to Paro because there's more miracles to be done and the Jewish people need a new story at the Seder. It sounds as though the original objective of the Makos was already completed at the end of the era with the the Mako, with the Plague of Hail. And hence, there's a new direction regarding the final three. So what is it about the first seven Makos? What objective was achieved at the end of our Parsha after the Plague of Hail that allows that big banner, you might say, mission completed, to be affixed in the text and then a new mission of the final three. What is the climax point of Barat at the end of our parsha? So you will notice, studying our parsha carefully, that in the Makkah of Barat, Paro says something which he never said before. He says, In Paraktes, Pasakhavzion, hapam." Hashem hatsandak vani ami harasha. He says, I've sinned. Hashem is the righteous one. Me and my people are evil. Up until this point, he played the game. He said, Okay, I'll let the Jewish people go under the pressure of the given plague, be it be for, I'll let them go. But he never came around and acknowledged the rightness of Hashem and the wrongness of his cause. It is at Makas Barat when he acknowledges this truth, when he confesses, when he does what I would call a vidoy or a chuva of sorts. Now, as much as when the plague is gone, Pyro is back to his old games and his old ways, I would suggest, nonetheless, something pivotal happened when Pyro confessed the rightness of Hashem and the wrongness of his own ways. And in a certain sense, the first mission of the Makos was complete. Because the role of the Makos is really to redeem Paro and to spiritually resuscitate Paro. To bring Paro to this place of acknowledgement. Yeah, I acknowledge Hashem and I am wrong. I am on my road to a true of sorts here. And you will trace a pattern in the text not only a. Not only does Paro for the first time at the end of our Parsha speak this way, Hashem HaTzadik Vaniva Amihar HaRasham, but in the story following, in next week's Parsha, he continues to talk this way. When you scroll to Parsha's bow, you will see again he admits there in the Makkah which follows Chatasi, Hashem Hatzadek. So it seems like a real breakthrough happened at the end of our parsha, And this is the mission complete. This is what the Makos were really coming to do. Bring Paro on board. And as we said, Paro required a blunt tool of discipline. He is a very disobedient student, so to speak, of Hashem. But this is what the Makos are coming to do. And then it's mission accomplished as far as Paro is concerned, and therefore in next week's parsha Bo, a new justification is necessary. Why final three Makos? Why more plagues? If it's mission accomplished, and you will notice in next week's parsha Bo, it no longer speaks about attacking Paro. The new justification for the Makos at the end of Bo is. We need more, more miraculous revelation. The Jewish people need a story of Amun. Paro is really not the focus anymore. Because what Paro need, needed through the Makos, a on Paro's part, that happened already at the end of Parsha's Veira and that was the initial goal of the Makos. After Parsha's Feira, Paro is almost not the focus of the Makos anymore. He is almost a puppet on stage at the end in the Parsha's Bo story at the final three Makos, a puppet on stage to enable a, revela- a revelation. And he, he is almost, I would call him a bobblehead on the stage in Parsha's Bo. More revelation is necessary. The Jewish people need a sefer Yetzias Mitzrayim, so you need a Paro resisting to create the conditions for a revelation. That's Parsha's bow. It's really not the story of Paro anymore. The story of Paro ends in our Parsha. The story of Paro in terms of the Makos ends in our Parsha when Paro comes aboard and admits and acknowledges because that's what Hashem wants out of Paro. Hashem does not want to engage in this phantom battle with the tyrant, Paro, forever. Because ultimately the focus is positive. The focus is bringing everyone into the picture. On some level, no human being left behind. And I was proud to find traces of this thesis in studying the division of Parshas Vaera and Bo, in the commentaries in the Ramban and the Rashban, they hint to this perspective in next week's Parsha Bo, that it was mission accomplished at the end of Parshas Va'ira or Parsha really when Pyro came aboard and acknowledged Hashem HaTzadik vanivami HaRashon, and therefore Parshas Bo is a new story with a new objective. Now, I have found in various settings, when I've articulated this thesis and this textual analysis, a resistance which people have. People have a resistance to the no human being, the left behind, to redeeming even the tyrant Pyro himself. They tell me Pyro is too much of a nemesis, he is too arch evil to. See as redeemable, to suggest that the goal was to bring him on board. But in fact, it is quite clear in Chazal in the statements of the sages that they see the statement of Paro at the end of our parsha, Hashem ha-Tzadak bani va'ami harashan. <laughs> Chazal see this as a very meaningful tshuva certainly considering the spiritual limitations of Paro. Because Chazal the sages tell us that Paro and the Mitzrim were rewarded for this acknowledgement. This acknowledgement, Hashem is right and I'm wrong. Because you will notice in two parashios hence, in Parshas Beshalach, when the Mitzrim perish at sea, the Yashir describes how the Mitzrayim were buried in the seafloor. They were as though swallowed by the seafloor. The corpses of the Egyptians is below the ground. Say the Chazal as cited by Rashi, this means they're buried, believe it or not. The evil Egyptians, after they perish at Yam are buried, explain Chazal why? Because at the end of Parsha Sveira or Parsha, there was this confession, this admission, that is why they merit burial. And burial is significant. You see, they were reward worthy due to this acknowledgement. I mean, because all are understanding, it's not simply Paro playing the system, as some might want to believe, some who want to look at evil as Paro, as just the the caricature of Satan or something, that there's no way there can be any merit or any sincerity to the despot. Chazal sees, by Paro's standards, something significant happening here that actually brought merit upon not only himself but the entire Egyptian people. I believe the reason why Chazal are Singh and Paro's statement here a true on the entire Egyptian people's part is because Pyro actually speaks on behalf of his people in this confession. Hashem ha v'Ami Hashem is the Tzadik and I and my people are evil. Paro, the leader, is confessing on behalf of the people. But you see, there, there's certainly a, a degree of sincerity here, some sort of redemption on Pyro's part, which is... What the Makos up to this point is all about. This is meaningful. This is big. This is part and parcel of the redemption. Geula is not only Geula of the Jewish people, but Geula requires on some level a redemption of all of mankind that to some degree even the enemy is brought on board. So now the reward of buried at sea, becomes very, very significant. It is the validation, it is the affirmation that there was total redemption. Not only in the simple sense redemption of the victim was redeemed, but there is redemption in terms of bringing even the enemy on board. And and mind you, This is not to say that the enemy comes on board from his own volition. He needs the blunt force of Hashem. He needs the rod. Yes, the, 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 the unruly student needs that sort of blunt strike. But in the end, that's the goal. Because we're not here to fight with anyone in the end. We're here to bring with total and utter ge'ulah, total harmony. So, seen this way, there must be some deep symbolism to what the particular reward of Paru's Truva was. He and the Mitzrim buried at sea. Mida Kneg and Mida, measure for a measure. Somehow the burial at sea represents what this Truva is all about, what this redemption of even the wicked is about. And I would suggest as follows. Drowning at sea, as the Mitzrim do at Yom Suf, is a horrible, torturous death. Think of the body bobbling, bobbing, up and down and up and down and up and down, wrestling with the waves, hustling for life itself. But after this horrible maelstrom, then there's peace. The body rests in peace. What that means is, initially there's tension. But in the end, there's a certain resting in peace. There's a certain reconciliation, which even the wicked have. The process of the Egyptians' death corresponds to their behavior. Initially, they resist Hashem. They fight with Hashem. And on some level, they are always resisting. Ultimately, they had to die. Because on some level, they always resist Hashem. As symbolized by the way they wrestle with the waves and die with great tension. But there's a deeper perspective of Finale, resting in peace, which is an ultimate resolution, which Chazal are paralleling, which Chazal are attributing to Paro's statement of Truva. Ani at v'ami He rests in peace because ultimately he attains a peace of sorts with the truth with whatever degree of sincerity he had. And it is not simply a story that Paro happened to come on board. But I would argue it is integral to the whole story of Geula. Because as we're saying, for Geula to be complete in the end, even the wicked must rest in peace with a degree of acknowledgement of the truth. And the more I dug into this and sensitively studied Midrashim, it became apparent to me that Chazal are in fact making something very grand out of Paro's tshuva. For example, one Midrash cited in the Yalkut Shimoni says, Ha-tshuva mi-paro. We learn the attribute of Tshuva from Paro. That Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur time, when we want to learn about Tshuva, we turn to Paro, says the Medrash, as our inspiration. He's a biblical model of Tshuva because while he initially denied Hashem and said, "Me Hashem Sharashma Bakolo, who is God that I should listen at Yamsuf, he said, "Me Hashem, who is like you amongst the mighty ones Hashem. Khazalar sings some symbolism to reusing the same words me, who is God, initially in defiance of Hashem, now in acknowledgement of Hashem, and see something so grand in the segue from who is God that I shall listen to, who is like God. That this 180 is seen as in fact a true 180, a true chuva, to the extent that it becomes a model for how we could do chuva. Now what motivates this Madrashic perspective? Again, one is understandably resistant to want to see paro, too much territory. In the on the landscape of virtue. This is the evil Pharaoh. Why are Chazal so fixated on his Truva again? I believe because Truva of the wicked must be part of the story of Ge'ula for the harmony of redemption to be complete. And there's yet another Meghrish glorifying the Truva of Paro as a model, as a model of repentance, which now we can appreciate. And that is a rather well-known madrash to Sefer Yona, the story of Yonah in the Treyasser. We all know the story of Yona, which is read in the Haftorah to Melchan kipper, Kippur. The way Yonah inspires the people of ninveh to Tshuva. And we know in that story that when Yonah Finally, after all of his turmoil in the fish and spat out, and finally the agreement on his part to be Hashem's cleric call of repentance, finally, he arrives in Ninveh, and the Pesachim say that the king of Ninveh was receptive to Yonah's message and led the people in repentance. He actually, the king himself, removed his royal cloak and led his people in donning sackcloth and him no resistance from him, to the contrary. Well, says the Medrash, who do you think this king was, this king of Ninveh, who was so receptive to Chuva? Paro. Who in Midrashic imagery reappears in Ninveh. Now this sounds astounding. This almost sounds like a fantastical Medrish. Paro living hundreds of years into the future. Hence, following the Maral of Prague's approach to Medrash, that Medrash speaks not in literalism, not of physical facts, but in concept. There must be a meaning Chazal are trying to convey in this provocative perspective, paro-resurrected in the form of the king of Ninveh. But now we understand. The king of Ninveh, Ninveh, the entire story of Yonah, is the model story of Tshuva. Pyro of all people, figuring into that story means that Tshuva is about bringing even the wicked into the picture, and that happens, no less than Paro, no less than the arch-nemesis that ha- himself. That really does happen. And all associations of Tshuva ought to be linked back to Paro. He's a paradigm of Truva, paragon of Tshuva, because that's what makes Keula complete. And again, just to reiterate, this does not at all suggest any sort of pacifist perspective. Any sort of let's, let's go easy on the enemy. Let's go easy on the justice sentence vis-a-vis the enemy. The makos in all their fury is justice and justice must be served. But the issue at hand is, justice is a means. Hashem, who's the father of all of mankind, like a parent, ultimately is trying to bring man to a good place. We all need discipline from God. The more disobedient human being needs that harsher discipline. And it's a very harsh discipline required, and justice is necessary. But it's justice for a greater purpose. This issue is very much on my mind now in terms of current events in the Jewish world. There was a very sad scandal which happened in Israel regarding a certain well-known figure who was accused of certain crimes. And at this stage, the accusation stage, prior to a court ruling, was Socially ostracized, felt all the consequences, and was so stigmatized, demoralized that he never took his life. And in my conversations with people about this, and this sad, sad story did he do it, did he not? It doesn't matter that an individual. Was so driven, or an Adam Chashev, a respectable person, was driven to do this. You see, Kama Koho Shalbush, as the sage is saying, just how stigmatizing social disgrace is. It's, it's horrible to think. And what I've commented to friends and the like, or questioned friends and the like, is in a perfect ideal world, there ought to be a way. For individuals to face full consequence of their deed, including loss of institutional positions, certainly loss of access to harm others anymore, to face all the necessary consequences from a justice perspective, from a safety perspective, but that's for a tachlis, that's for a purpose, no effort to demonize people per se some ability to be Mahabad people as people and even provide them with the support they need during difficult times, including difficult times of their own doing, along with the necessary social consequences. And 9 out of 10 people have told me that I'm living in a dream world. In the real world, you can't do that. It's black or white if an individual has done horrible things or is accused of horrible things. When the public finds out, they are going to be caricatured with the two devil horns. There's no way around. And I find that so, so sad. I do not believe that as a Hashem perspective, a Torah perspective. There is no contradiction between justice and safety. And for a tachlis, for a purpose, ultimately no human being is demonized. We're not out to fight anyone. So long as an individual is alive, there's something Hashem wants from a person, including their own Avodah of Tshuva. And the goal is to enable it, not to, in the end, fight with anybody. This, you might say, balance between justice, facing down evil for what it is, and dealing with it seriously, while at the same time working towards a a place of redemption even for the wicked, as a Yetzias Mitzrayim theme, as a Geula theme, I posit can be traced further in the annual commemoration of Yetzias Mitzrayim on Pesach in the mitzvah of avoiding chametz and destroying chametz. Let's develop this a bit together. On the face of it, destroying chametz is quite a thorough process, to say the least. Stress-provoking process, thorough process. It begins with bidika, cleaning the house, examining every little bit of chametz. Not one crumb is going to escape my scrutiny, says the housewife. followed by Bittal, verbal nullification, and then Bior, burning that chametz to ash. There seems to be almost an animus towards that chametz. Outsiders might call it an obsession with the chametz, as though there is an open war on that chametz. And you might say, what is so vicious about the chametz? What is so, why do we find the chametz Almost give life to the Chametz, almost give, make an, a living antagonist out of the Chametz in this mitzvah. And there's a reason for it. Because Chametz symbolizes evil, specifically the Eight Sahara, the evil inclination from within. Chazal the sages develop on many levels how the leavening process represents human delusions of grandeur and human haughtiness and corrupting the natural pristine state of a person. So this Yitzhahara is really part of the redemption of Pesach too. The freedom of Pesach is not only freedom from the evil tyrant Paro, but it's freedom from the evil tyrant of Yitzhahara, of Bad Midos, all of those things. And it seems to me the Chazal, the sages, see the Hametz as the other side of the coin of the paro, as the tyrant from whom we are seeking respite and relief. This is beautifully expressed in a Yehi ratzon, in a famous piece of liturgy, which many had got a sight to be said at the time of the burning of the chametz. It says, Hashem shebiart, shebiarti chametz min abayis, just as I burn the chametz from the house, Rid my house of chometz, Right? Get rid of all evil. Just like you destroyed the Egyptians so many years ago. It links the destruction of the Sahara as symbolized by chometz, to the destruction of the Egyptians through the Makos. So Khamets is the spiritual power, the spiritual mitzvah upon which we are Striking with Makos, so to speak, in this thorough burning, we are given a chance to play the Makos game to war with our Paros, the Paro within, as symbolized by Chamas. So, from this perspective, we are fighting evil in an unrelenting combat as we burn the chametz, so absolutely and thorough. But there's another angle to be chametz. Because surprisingly, the chumash never uses the words be your chametz, burn or destroy chametz. That is a Torah Shabal power. That is a word of commentary of Chazal and the Jewish people. The Chumash, i.e. the word of Hashem, says something else. It articulates the mitzvah as Tashbisu Chumas. Tashpisu from the word Shabbos, literally means achieve rest from Chumas. Shabbos, rest, respite, serenity. The focus is not on fighting. The focus is peaceful. Because Torah Shebeksav, the written word, which is always describing the concept before the nitty-gritty of Torah Shebel develops what that concretely means, sets us on the goal, sets us towards the goal. The goal is not to fight with anyone. The goal is not be or be or destruction is only a means. We're not out to fight with anyone. We are out to confront the evil while it exists, ultimately to bring to a place of shvisa, rest, respite. And I would posit that when we sit down at the Seder to a clean house, and all the stress and all the high intensity of the preparation of Pesach and ridding the house of Chavons is a thing of the past. There is this profound sense of serenity at the Seder in which we are not fighting with anyone. When there's not evil, when there's not chametz anymore, chametz had to be confronted, evil had to be confronted, but now there is harmony, and that's what we're seeking, harmony with the chametz. Now, harmony can't be achieved by maintaining the chametz in its harmful form. Peace cannot be achieved so long as we give free reign to our enemies, physical or spiritual. They have to be neutralized, but neutralized with a very clear focus on So this is the elegance of the articulation of the Torah's words in contrast to the practical expression of the mitzvah, that of course in the practicality we achieve this through burning the huts. In concrete terms, when evil's here, you have to deal with it, and you need a court of law. And at times, perhaps even a capital punishment of sorts. Yes, that's on the implementation level, on the Torah Spalpeh level. But in the focus and the purpose, the focus is Shvisa. And it's powerful to note that this expression, tashbisu chametz mibatecha, achieve Shabbos, rest from chametz in your house. Serenity from evil, rather I'm fighting with the evil, is not an isolated expression, but reappears, regarding Pesach, in the mitzvah of Svir As-Homer, counting the omer. Because in describing the mitzvah of Svir following the first day of Pesach, we begin counting our seven weeks. The Torah says, the day after Shabbos, begin your count. Now the day after Shabbos here actually means the day after the first day of Pesach. And it led to much confusion in interpretation. Why does the Torah describe the first day of Pesach vis-a-vis Sphere as Shabbos, the day after Shabbos? I think the thematic symbolism to this, in line with that corollary Tashbisucham, it's the same word is Pesach, Geula, moving on from the encounter with the tyrants. It's all about Shabbos. It's all about peace. It's clarifying for us how we experience Pesach. It's clarifying for us that when we celebrate a Pesach, our attitude is not. They tried to kill us. We won. Let's eat with a vengeance. It is, Baruch Hashem, evil's not here. So we can put our weapons in our weapons closet. We can strip ourselves of the knight's coat of armor, which we had to wear in an unrelenting way facing down the evil. Because now we can be embracing, no one's fighting with us anymore. The world at large has been redeemed. And we could be the love we could show our nature as the loving people who we truly are. In this vein, dealing with evil resolutely, but with a goal of peace rather than a goal of war, I think of a famous Yiddishasa, Yiddisha story. And I have to tell you, my friends, I find something about Yiddish stories times I need the help of a translation, but I find something very simplistic, but yet rich and deep in the simplicity of these Yiddisha Maisalach and how they bring out primal truths in the human condition and the Jewish condition. And the story goes like this. There was a housewife in a shtetl in Europe in some sort of ranchack, straw-roof sort of hut. And lo and behold, in her kitchen, her little winkle, her little corner of a kitchen, she sees a, a mouse. Not uncommon in that circumstance. Some of us have had mice to deal with in our houses, too. She sees the mouse. And she goes, oh boy! Or whatever the Yiddish equivalent to oh boy is. I guess it's Ive." A nuisance has been foisted upon her. She needs to pull out her broom and her dustpan and deal with that mouse and do away with him. But unbeknownst to her, in the cupboard, sits a cat with two large green sparkling eyes And the cat from its vaulted place in the cupboard is also eyeing the mouse. And she is looking on with glee, awaiting the opportunity to pounce on the cat, and the mouse, I'm sorry, to pounce on the mouse and rip that mouse apart to bite-sized pieces. What the story is focusing on is both the housewife and the cat both seek to do away with the mouse, ultimately. But the perspective is a very different one. The housewife, she sees the mouse as a nuisance foisted upon her. She doesn't want to fight with any mouse. She'd be happier if the mouse never showed up. Ultimately, she wants the mouse out of the picture and to move on and care for her family tonight. The cat, on the other hand, savors the combat, savors the battle. And that is not what a makos is about. That is not what a Jewish people is about. I think of a story which I one time heard about Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, who was a very insightful man. There was some sort of rally or protest rally arranged for Jewish interest. Maybe it was a six-day war rally whatever it was. Jewish people were in danger, physically, spiritually, whatever it was. And whatever they were protesting or felt you needed a public image about was resolved. The call was given. They're not fighting with Israel and the United Nations anymore, whatever the issue was. So Yaakov said, "Good. We could call off the rally. Everyone could go back to where, go back to school and have a day. And someone said, "It's show a shame." People were so riled up. They were so looking forward to screaming their lungs out. And react was horrified by that attitude. He said, we don't see a protest rally as something to be glorified, as something we aspire to. We see it as a last resort. When political shenanigans or whatever it is forces a an assertiveness, a skirmish of sorts, sometimes we have to do that. But the focus is to achieve exactly what we achieved, that no one's fighting with us anymore. The focus is peace, even with mitzvah, even with chatz. And that is the power of the Shabbos motif. And I would like to suggest, bringing our Shear tonight to its conclusion, that this perspective of the makos, a makos which breaking about on the end of the parasha, which is moving towards the aspiration of paru's tshuva, Hashem va'a tzadok y'arashad. This perspective is not limited to Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim as the formative event in Jewish history, as the first geula, is simply the tone setter. This is how we Jews relate to evil forever. Facing it down resolutely but ultimately seeking to achieve peace and harmony. And I found powerful corroboration from a final textual pattern which I will share with you. And that is, I found several besukim in all of Tanakh regarding idolaters and various wicked people which consistently use the word Shabbos, the same word Shabbos we traced regarding chametz and Pesach, the same word Shabbos rest to describe the cessation of the wicked. For example, in Dvarim paraklamit Lamed Beis, Pasach Chavav, Parashas Hazinu, it says, Amarti I said I would abandon them, I would abandon the wicked. May Enosh zecherah. I will lay their memory to rest. God is not seeking to fight with the evil, but rather to lay their men in memory to rest. I will achieve rest. Likewise, there's a Pesach in Yecheska, which speaks about breaking the idols. But it doesn't conclude with a Smashing imagery, but rather Vinishbaru, yes, the idols will be broken, but ultimately the Nishbisu Their idols will break and then will come rest, says Yachaskal Parakvav Pasakvav. There's no phantom battle with idols. And finally, a Pasak in Tahel and Parakhas Pasakimal. Lahashbis ayev, To bring the enemy to rest. We are seeking rest. We are seeking peace. But a peace which comes through power, a peace which comes through confidence when we face down evil, and the poise which comes from clarity of purpose, clarity of mission, rather than the chaos of endless battle, endless skirmishing. So I would suggest that tonight's she'er and hopefully this new perspective of the makos we traced from the text, informs not only an attitude towards the makos and the mitzvah, but an attitude in terms of how we deal with evil, wickedness, unsavory people, and unsavory influences amongst us, face down the evil, deal with the evil resolutely, in the goal of achieving peace and harmony, true Ge'ula, the Shabbos perspective. Thank you very much.